Taliban begin confiscating guns in Kabul. And an interview with Philip Smith of the National African American Gun Association. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. Hey guys, Stephen Gatowski here, founder of TheReload.com and host of the Weekly Reload Podcast. Remember, you get this today early if you go over to TheReload.com and become a paid member uh, on top of a number of other wonderful benefits that you <laughs> receive by joining, like uh, access to exclusive posts uh, that feature more of my analysis on uh, different topics of the week uh, and all the latest gun stories. Uh, as well as a, a weekly Sunday newsletter uh, that features my analysis as well. But when we get, let's get started this week. Uh, we saw a horrible tragedy unfold in Afghanistan, obviously, um, and which did bleed into the, the gun world uh, with the Taliban telling residents of Kabul to surrender their firearms uh, promising them that they would be safe and that they no, no longer needed uh, weapons for personal protection now that the Taliban has recaptured control of the country. Uh, the repressive, violent, terrorist-supporting regime uh, claimed that it, it, residents no longer had anything to worry about now that they were back in charge due to the American surrender, uh, which has uh, unfolded rather chaotically, as I'm sure you're all aware. Uh, obviously, uh, many Afghans did not buy these promises, and some clung to the sides of American jets in desperate attempts to escape the country, uh, apparently not reassured by what the Taliban had to say, some sadly falling to their death um, during that horrific scene. Um, we also had a number of court rulings this week um, on gun rights uh, that uh, were victories for gun rights advocates. We saw in Pennsylvania um, a, a gun club was able to uh, convince the Third Circuit, a panel of judges on the Third Circuit, to uh, vacate a lower court ruling that upheld um, regulations in uh, the Pittsburgh area uh, locality that banned um, the use of centerfire rifles at uh, the gun club's range. Uh, those restrictions were ruled to be unconstitutional uh, under the Second Amendment, and the case was remanded for reconsideration by lower courts, which effectively means that the regulation likely won't survive. Um, and then in Hawaii, there were a pair of rulings this week that, uh, or a ruling and a stipulation, as sort of a legal agreement, uh, out, of, out of the beautiful state of Hawaii, which has some of the strictest gun laws in the country. Uh, first up was Honolulu. The city and county of Honolulu agreed in really kind of record time to um, give in to a lawsuit that was filed uh, against the practice in that city of uh, denying people gun purchase permits based off of uh, disorderly conduct violations, not even criminal charges in that, in that uh, case. And the city quickly folded once this lawsuit was filed. Ten days later, they signed an agreement with plaintiffs that they would no longer deny people based off of their uh, history of violating a disorderly uh, conduct uh, uh, regulation. So in addition to that, the same lawyer, Alan Beck, actually, is involved in both of these cases. He uh, also won uh, in front of a federal judge uh, in a suit against two provisions in Hawaii's um, handgun purchase permit process. Uh, where they had required that applicants um, show up in person at police stations for inspections of their handguns before completing the purchase, and also that the handgun purchase permits 
were only valid for 10 days. This had caused a lot of issues, obviously, especially in the age of uh, COVID-19, uh, where oftentimes the in-person appointments were not available uh, within that 10-day period. But either way, those, both of those restrictions were found to be unconstitutional and a violation of the Second Amendment and were struck down uh, by a federal court this week. So quite a number of advancements on the gun rights front, uh, several victories uh, for gun rights advocates in court, in federal court this week uh, across the country. And then obviously the very sad situation for uh, the people of Afghanistan this week and a real world gun confiscation has begun in Kabul as the Taliban takes control. Um, but in better news, uh, the reload has a new contributor, uh, contributing writer. And I thought I'd take a little bit of time just to introduce you guys to him. He actually wrote the piece on the Pennsylvania ruling, uh, and we're hoping to see more pieces from him, some news and analysis. So uh, without further ado, I will introduce you to him, and then we will go as well to uh, Philip Smith from the National African American Gun Association to discuss uh, uh, some other issues. So here we go. <laughs> I never know. I never know how to like what a good transition is for, for these things, but forgive me. <laughs> Let's move right on into the uh, the first interview with our new contributor. All right, everybody, I wanted to introduce you to a new member of the Reload family here. Uh, Jake Fogelman is going to be a contributing writer uh, over at thereload.com. He'll be offering uh, written reports as well as uh, some analysis pieces coming up in the future. Uh, it's sort of a, an internship for him. He's uh, newly on board. I'm gonna hope to uh, to mold him in uh, in my in my image here right, at the at the reload, um, Jake, Jake. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, like you said, I'm I'm Jake Bogleman. Um, I'm 24, a recent graduate of Metropolitan State University. It's a school in Denver. Um, I'm a Colorado native, born and raised. Um, yeah, and I. Uh, even said just getting into writing for the first time um and I'm a big fan of uh guns and and all things gun culture so mm. and so what uh what makes you want to become a you know a journalist uh, uh a writer uh about about firearms in particular sure so uh my interest in firearms kind of started from a pretty young age uh, i grew up in a house that you know my father owned guns his father owned guns it's kind of par for the course for us um and uh, I, I got my first gun <clears throat> shortly after I graduated high school. I got got a shotgun, got into skeet shooting. Um, had a buddy that took me hunting for the first time. I got into hunting, which then got me into more guns as I got older and was old enough to you know, purchase handguns, got into target shooting, um, started learning more about self-defense, uh, got a concealed carry permit, and now I'm an everyday carrier. Uh, so firearms really just became kind of a part of my, my personal life. Uh, I got really interested in it. Um, nice. Yeah, no, that, that was a similar story for me. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, when I first got into firearms, I wasn't really, I never shot a gun until after college, actually. And I think a lot of people are surprised by this fact, but, but, uh, you know, I grew up in Southeastern Pennsylvania, but, uh, never, my mom had a gun. She had like a little 22, uh, rifle, the little squirrel engraved on the, the stock, but, uh, we never really shot, uh, guns at all when I was growing up. And so, I didn't get into it until I moved down to Virginia and became involved with uh, uh, writing about uh, media. Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, and then from there, I obviously had this, a similar sort of path. I got very interested in it, uh, you know, to the point where I, you know, build my own uh, guns now and and uh, also have a concealed carry license. Uh, so pretty interesting. Pretty, it's pretty similar tracks there, I would say. Uh, what What made you want to uh start doing uh reporting now that now that you've uh, graduated from school uh uh what is it that that appeals to you about uh you know storytelling i guess uh sure um well it specifically has to do with with the gun uh angle um i saw what you're doing um and you're one of the few people i feel like that is uh are, are covering guns with a, a perspective of actually having some knowledge and some background 
you know, and that's not necessarily the fault of the other people doing it. They may not have just grown up around guns or, or talked to many gun owners. But, you know, I wanted to be someone that could contribute to that, you know, having personal knowledge of guns and could report on them you know, accurately um, and fairly. Uh, so I wanted to do my bit and get into that. Yeah, great. Well, uh, I think we'll have a lot of opportunities for you here uh, to write about interesting stuff, which means in the end, more uh, content, more good content for uh, you guys, the listeners, the readers of The Reload. Uh, so I think this is going to work out really well for everybody. Uh, and we're happy to have you on board and I uh, look forward to uh, seeing more of what you're writing. We got your first couple pieces have gone up this week already, so people can head over and and check them out. Uh, we got, you know, your bios up on our about page. If people want to read a little bit more about you. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a good ride. Uh, <laughs> yeah. With, I'm excited with you here. Uh, yeah. And I think I hopefully we'll be able to, to teach you some stuff about how to do all, all this and, and hopefully you'll be able to break some interesting stories for us. You know, I think that's where, uh, where we'll, we'll have a great, uh, com con you know, nexus of, of of mutual benefit um and and so uh you know we'll probably have you on the podcast again too in the future as well you know if, if you'd like to be of course and uh uh we'll we'll have the listeners hear more from you uh but in the meantime this week we're we're actually going to be talking to uh philip smith from uh, the National African American Gun Association oh, cool. here. That's uh, the next interview up. So I think you guys should stick around for that. I think he gives a lot of uh, interesting stuff uh, on the Chipman front, uh, ATF director, uh, as well as uh, the growth of of uh, black gun ownership in America over the last couple of years. So uh, make sure you stay tuned and listen to that. All right, we're here with Philip Smith, of the Na who's the national president of the National African-American Gun Association. Uh, thank you for joining us. I wanted to get your perspective on some of the things that have been happening in the news. And obviously, I know your group has grown a lot over the last uh, year and a half here. And, and we wanted to talk a little bit about those trends that we've seen uh, in gun ownership in America. But uh, can you introduce yourself to the audience for anyone who might not know who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm Philip Smith. I'm the national president and founder of the National African Gun Association, otherwise known as NAGA. Um, we are in every, uh, we have members in every state. We are about 130 or so chapters. We have average on, on a monthly basis about 1,000 new members, roughly 1,200,000 new members every month. Um, very aggressively um, growing. Um, a lot of good folks joining, trying to learn about guns. 70% of our folks are, we call newbies. First time gun owners, which is uh, which is a treat. You get a chance to really teach folks from the very beginning. Um, we're very, very uh, focused on training, training, training. But we also have uh, uh, a social activist portion in terms of talking about the Second Amendment. We're not a politically uh, oriented organization in terms of we are nonpartisan, but we will discuss those issues that affect the Second Amendment. And we try to defend that Second Amendment pretty vigorously. Yeah, yeah. You've certainly been getting more involved in the political activism side of things lately, uh, especially with the nomination of uh, David Chipman to lead the ATF. Uh, I know you had a, a piece recently uh, published, uh, I believe it was over at Town Hall. Uh, That's where correct. You, yeah, where you talked about his, his nomination and some of the issues you have with it and some of the questions that you want him to answer. What, what, you know, what do you want to say to him? What are, what are the top concerns you have about David Chipman at this point? If I could talk to him right now, if he was in the room, I would be very, you know, direct with him and ask him, you know, one, um, his seemingly heavy bias that his statements in the past have been anti-gun, clearly, um, regarding um, the rights of normal citizens. I'm not talking about folks that walk around in yachts and all that good stuff. We're talking about the normal Joe and Jane that walk around and have to do, have to do the normal things with a gun. Um, I think his stance is somewhat uh, aggressive against the Second Amendment, and I think that makes him very, very dangerous in terms of potentially being a nomination. Two, I think his statement that he's made in the past in terms of his perspective from a racial standpoint with some of the members, the black members uh, in, at, at the ATF are suspect at, at, at best. And for his HR file to disappear suddenly where no one can view it and get any type of public perspective is troubling at, at a minimum. So. Right. From those two stances, I think he's very, very problematic as a as a candidate. 
And uh, obviously at the reload here, we, we broke a story um, just recently on a new allegation from a black ATF agent, former agent, um, who said that Chipman had targeted him during a promotion assessment and accused him falsely of, of cheating. Uh, he claims that there was a, uh, an OIG investigation into, into Chipman's claims against him and that he was cleared. Uh, the Department of Justice has confirmed that Chipman did initiate a, this kind of investigation against one mm -hmm. agent. They didn't give any further details beyond that other than to deny um, any sort of racial bias on the part of, of uh, David Chipman. But um, I was wondering what your reaction to, to this story is, to this claim. Uh, well, the thing that, that troubled me the most, and, I, and I'm very familiar with that uh, particular allegation, the thing that was really troubling after that guy was going through all this, his career was pretty much put on standstill. And he was, it was a question mark, uh, you know, next to his name, no matter what he does for the rest of his life in the, within the ATF, based on um, these allegations or this, um, this stigma that David Chipman put on him. And I think that's that's just not a good thing to do. And I certainly don't want to have someone in a leadership position in the United States government with that type of perspective. I just don't. Um, for me, it's not tolerated. It should not be tolerated in any way, shape, or form um, on any level. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you've, you've mentioned in your piece that uh, as far as potential alternatives go to David Chipman, like you would have preferred to have seen the acting director uh, be nominated by President Biden over over David Chipman. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'm just a big believer from growing from within. Um, this guy's been here for, what, 20-plus years, the, the, the acting director. He's known within the ranks. He's well-respected. Um, he is, based on what I've seen, I can't say if he's anti-gun or, or pro-gun, but he certainly has a neutral perspective, and I think that's the kind of person you want in that position at the ATF, uh, someone that has a good wind of uh of support behind him or her and it seemed like the department would really r rally around that particular person for for the position as opposed to uh someone else coming from the outside who really doesn't know the culture or has been separated from the culture so long he's kind of seen as an alien um and i think what's most troubling with david chipman is his relationship with the giffords to me that is the that that's a that's a no-go you can't advocate against guns and then suddenly be put in a position where you're supposed to protect gun rights. It's just, it doesn't mix. And uh, I think he should be uh, removed completely by, by President Biden without any hesitation. Okay. Um, and, and so to talk a little more broadly here about uh, black gun ownership in America, uh, mm -hmm. you know, obviously you're at the center of, of this growth. Your group has, has grown alongside uh, black gun ownership over the last year and a half. Correct. Um, you know, we saw the National Shooting Sports Foundation put out a dealer survey that indicated the fastest growing group uh, of gun owners in America are African Americans, um, which is something we've been hearing for a while now from the industry. Um, and what do you think is, is motivating more African Americans to start uh, becoming gun owners? Obviously, we've seen this uh, in recent years uh an opposition in public polling at least yeah. for many in the the african-american community uh towards gun ownership or at least uh, they're more open to stricter gun laws on uh, yeah. you know in a lot of these polls why do, like do you see this as uh, this these new gun owners in the black community as uh indication that that's beginning to shift or what how do you see this um you know from someone who's who's a representative of the largest African-American gun group? That, that's a great question, Stephen. I think, first of all, it's kind of a three-headed monster. I always kind of put everything in, in categories as it, as it relates to our growth as, a, as, you know, as black folks. Um, one is just a maturation process of our community. We, and that's the reason why NACA was built. We're trying to get that information out slowly to millions and millions of African-Americans. Right now, as we speak, we have about 12 million African-Americans with guns right now already in the, in the country. Um, so that speaks to a good a good start. Still not you know where I would like it to be, but it's still a start. So what we're trying to do is to educate those folks and many many others that it's okay to have a gun. A gun is part of your right as an American, and you have the Second Amendment to back you up on that, and to be active when you see things like David Chipman and all that stuff going on. So we are constantly educating, sending out emails, 
letting him or her know that's a member um, about their gun rights, practicing uh, to learn how to shoot a gun, how to hold a gun, all that good basic stuff um, that they are uh, needing to, to learn. So that, that's one piece, the maturation process. Secondly, um, the, the elephant in the room or the, the thing that really changed the game for everybody was COVID-19. When that happened, as you know, everybody was kind of put on pause and you kind of took a look around you. And for once in your life, for most folks that I know, including myself, you worried about the stability of the country. You worried about food sources or resources. Is there going to be gas at the station? Is there going to be mob violence coming in? And bottom line, would you be able to protect your family if something were to happen? And I can't tell you, Stephen, how many folks called me who were anti-gun. They were friends of mine, but they said, hey, Phil, you know, I like what you're doing. I, I don't agree with it, but I appreciate what you're doing, but I'm not going to ever buy a gun. Hundreds of those folks called me saying, Phil, I need to get a gun. Which gun do I need to get? I'm, I'm really scared. That was the major thing which really affected not only black folks, but anybody in this country, because you had to really consider um, as a man, as a woman, as a family, as a, as a unit, um, as a community, okay, this looks pretty serious here. Um, the country is shutting down. Um, I can't go to work. Money's short, you know. Is, as I said before, is mob violence coming down along with food shortages. So that, that was the, the, the main difference, I think, among any other factors that, that were happening um, in, in, the, in our community. The last piece in, in the third factor, there's been tension. Let's face it, there's been tension in um, the country on some of the political, uh, you know, uh, and I'm not going to say agendas, but a lot of the political uh, stuff in the last quarter, the election cycle. And folks were kind of nervous about that, and particularly our community. So we kind of saw some stuff going on that we didn't really feel comfortable with. So a lot of our folks are going out and buying guns because of that also. So if you combine all three of those factors, it's kind of a perfect storm for organizations like myself to educate folks, to give them to give them support and to help them feel comfortable and to kind of reassure them that everything's going to be okay. You have a firearm to protect you. Somebody breaks in your house at 2 a.m. in the morning. You need to protect your wife and your, and your kids. And that's what the bulk of people that join our organization want to do. They just want to be able to protect their family, their property. Um, and that's the basis of our growth because we're very, very pragmatic in our approach. We're kind of like McDonald's. When you come to us, you know what you're going to get. We're very, we stay in our lane. We, are not, we don't try to act like we're something that we're not. And I think that's the, the beauty of the organization. And, and I'll make this last point. When folks come to NAGA, regardless of your race, gender, sexual orientation, we call you family. We're going to give you a high five. We're going to give you a big hug. And we're going to say, welcome, brother. Welcome, sister, to our organization. And we're going to make you comfortable. And you are going to be comfortable. You're going to have a good time shooting. After that, you know, at the range, you're going to go have some pizza or hot dogs and kind of hang out with one another. You're going to talk about old war stories about, you know, the first gun you bought or, you know, how our groupings were tight today and all that good stuff. And that is a good feel regardless of what color you are, regardless of what, how you vote. And that's the, the strength of the organization. That's why we're getting over 1,000 people every month because people know that, you know, if I go to Phil's group, they're going to accept me. And they're going to teach me how to, sh- how to shoot a gun, and I'm going to be comfortable, and everything's going to be very, very positive. And that's what we try to do. Now, if you want to talk about politics, you're welcome to do that. But you don't have to. In our group, we have a saying, and this is very, very important that I tell you this. We agree to disagree, but not disconnect. Meaning that if you and I are together in a meeting, and you say, hey, Phil, I just don't think we should open carry. I don't think people should open carry. I think it's a bad thing. And I'll say, Stephen, you know, I, I hear you what you're saying, brother. But I think everybody should have the right to open carry. And we can have that discussion. We can go back and forth. But at the end of the day, you're going to look at me and say, Phil, you're not going to change my mind. And I say, Stephen, you're not going to change my mind either. We're going to give each other a shake. And that's okay. And that's what we mean at NAGA. You can have different perspectives, different views, and still be right in the mix of things. You're not going to be ostracized. You're not going to be stigma, have a stigma attached to you. Well, Stephen doesn't want anybody to open carry ever. No, we don't do that, and I won't allow it. And that's the reason why people join the organization in droves like they've been joining, because they know, they know what they know, that we're going to be treat them in a very human, humanely fashion, humane fashion, and they're going to have a great time with the organization. So right. that, that, that's the secret sauce. And so what, what's your um, uh, membership level up to now? It's like about over, over, I think about over 42,000, something like that. And how many yeah, chapters? It's a long way to go. Um, 
Uh, but we're getting there. As far as chapters, about 130. Uh, my goal, personal goal, I like to get about to be about 500 chapters. Um, and as far as membership, I want our membership at least around 200,000. That's when I feel I think we've made a little traction because I mean, you figure if there's nine to 12 million African American gun owners right now, to get just uh, I think a good percentage of that, a little percentage, we need to be at least 200,000 to 600,000 members in total to have I think an, a true effect from a from a social standpoint. Uh, with our organization. No, that, that makes sense. Um, now, obviously, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of things to talk about when it comes to uh, racing guns in America, obviously. Uh, just, uh, and, and a lot of it has come up even recently. I mean, you guys filed, I guess we could start with, uh, you filed a, a brief, uh, the Supreme Court, um, against New York's restrictive uh, may-issue gun carry law, um, where you... Uh, referenced um the history of gun control in america and the racist origins of that um mm -hmm. uh you know i want to talk to you a little bit about that because uh certainly I, I thought you guys had a, a very uh you know one of the more fascinating briefs in that case um mm -hmm. where you, you know discussed at length how um these sort of laws that use subjective judgments by government officials to deny people uh, their gun rights, um, how in the history of the United States is littered with examples of that being used to deny specifically black people their gun mm -hmm. rights. And most famously, uh, as, as your brief points out, uh, Martin Luther King himself was subject to exactly this kind of discrimination uh, after his house was, was bombed. Right. Uh, he was denied a, a gun carry permit because of a May issue system. Correct. Uh, in the state that he was living in at the time, it was Alabama, I believe, right? Mm -hmm, and, correct. Um, and and so, uh, obviously, you guys connect that to uh, New York's law, um, and and I guess uh, generally these types of may issue concealed carry permit laws. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What uh, you know, wh where you see um, sort of the vestiges of of racism. Um, continuing to hang on in, in American gun laws today, uh, you know, what, what, what we should learn from that and what we should take away? Yeah, first of all, I want to thank our, our brilliant uh, legalist that we have within NAGA, um, Zita Davis. She's a former um, senior uh, federal prosecutor for the state of Georgia, incredibly gifted woman who has filed, I think, five to six amicus briefs for us to the United States Supreme Court. Incredibly gifted. I mean, just just a, a blessing to the organization. And she came out the blue, and we were we we're truly, you know, blessed to have her. Um, our goal, and I think Nazita's goal when she filed that, is to really have a overall perspective brought to the court, which says there are institutions in place which systematically prevent folks like that look like us from getting guns unfairly. Anytime, and this is just my general gist, because I'm not an attorney, I, I, don't have to, I don't have half the brains that she has. Um, but anytime you have a system in place where a very small group of people or a, a one person has the right to decline or approve your gun rights, I think that's wrong. I think you need to have a system where someone is qualified based on a general set of rules and regulations. No felonies, great. Outstanding citizen, nothing help in the, in their bio that says you no know, red flags or anything like that. If they meet that minimum qualification, he or she should be allowed to have a gun. I'm just opposed to having that one sheriff in a county, um, using the example of Dr. King, that says, no, he can't have a gun, regardless of what he's going through in his personal life. I think that in itself is internally problematic. And unfortunately, across this country, we still have those particular systems in place, which are preventing a lot of black folks and, and folks in general from getting guns that should be allowed to have guns. And I just wanna, don't want to limit to black folks because some good white folks and good uh, Latino and Asian communities are still being declined guns in instances where they shouldn't. So we all need to band together and say, you know what, let's scratch our head and look at this system and let's see if we can put something down in a very pragmatic fashion that will address the inequities of these small committees that nobody knows about or this one person that that's the, sh the sheriff or some unknown person pushing back and not allowing 
certain amount of folks to get guns. I think that's very, very bad, and we need to push back as strong as we as we possibly can. Right. Um, but I do think there is something to be said. You know, we, we talk a lot of, in America about uh, the disproportionate effects of, of various laws on uh, black Americans. Um, yes. But we very rarely have those same exact conversations about gun laws, even though uh, our federal uh, gun laws have the same effect. They have disproportionately affect black people uh, in America, um, even today, uh, even even if, you know, we, we agree that the people promoting gun control today are, are not doing so out of racist motivations, you still mm-hmm. have this effect that black people are disproportionately affected by most of these gun laws. Uh, especially in in uh, inner city areas, uh, and so you know it's, it, we don't really talk much about that. I, you know, I think in in media, uh, but it, but it's but it's something that is so. I mean, Stephen, this is something that is we talk about this every day, and I'll give you some some very quick examples. Let's look at the 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 single black mother in Chicago, South Side of Chicago, that's living in a very rough neighborhood. She needs to have something to be able to protect herself. But it's literally impossible for her to get a gun within the city. She would have to get exception rules. She would have to know somebody who knows somebody. She would have to pay somebody off to get a gun, just to get a gun. And if she were able to get a gun and have the right to get a gun, they're going to put so many financial requirements assessed to that gun. You have to take a class. You have to get this type of certificate by you. By the time you end up looking at the total financial you know, amount, you're in the thousands, $1,200, $1,300 being paid out for a $500 gun. Now, what that does to folks that are in very limited incomes, that pushes the gun out of their reach because you've attached financial requirements to buying that gun. And it's used under the guise of these are just laws and regulations to help protect the public, but you're hurting the public, the black community specifically with these laws that are in place. And I think that's the one thing that I, I hear and I get emails from people all over the country uh, on a daily basis. I can't tell you saying, Hey, Phil, I need to get a gun, but I can't afford the permit. Hey, Phil, I need to get a gun, but I can't afford to take this class that they're requiring me. It's an additional $400. Hey, Phil, I just can't afford a gun, but can you direct me? So they're just really heart wrenching stories and emails that I get on a daily basis where our people are just literally pushed out by these gun laws that are just really pushing it to to the extreme where you have to be a very wealthy person um, of extreme means to buy a gun. And I think that's wrong. I think the average American, I don't care if you're blue collar, I don't care if you're middle of the road or, or high end, whatever, you, we all should have the right to protect our families at night. And I, I'm just a big uh, proponent of that of that mindset. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, you know, I actually just wrote a piece about this uh, for the members over over at the reload, uh, where I discussed, you know, even if the Supreme Court strikes down uh, New York's carry law or all may issue laws and institutes, you know, a kind of nationwide shall issue, what we've seen up to this point is that localities that don't want people to have gun carry permits at all in the first place, when their laws get struck down, like in D.C. and Chicago, uh, mm-hmm. they will institute shall issue regimes but they'll be like you just described extremely expensive to actually um go through i mean chicago and dc uh are perfect examples of what you were talking about in the context of uh, gun carry permits because you have to uh pass a 16-hour course um that's really only taught in those areas so dc has a dc specific course that must be taught which means that it's more expensive to obtain because you have to get a special certification from the city to teach it. Uh, so it, and it's 16 hours long, which, I mean, we're all in favor of, of, of as much training as people uh, can get in terms of uh, carrying a gun. But uh, clearly when you make the requirements very high, it costs hundreds of dollars to get that class. And they require you to do live fire training before you get the permit, which again, yes, we would love people to, sh- you know, to do as much training as possible before getting a permit, but that DC does not, and Chicago does not have a public range inside of city limits. And so people who don't have cars, which is a lot of people who live in these a lot cities, of people, a lot of people, they don't have the means or it's extreme. It's much harder for them to make it to a gun range uh, 
to to fulfill these requirements and then you have all the licensing fees on top of that and fingerprinting requirements and the, the point is just that they make it extremely difficult to fulfill their requirements which ends up having the effect that only people who are well off can actually obtain these licenses Correct. not the poorer residents of the city and disproportionately that tends to be uh, minorities black black americans asian americans that is very Hispanic true americans that is very true and, and so you know even if the supreme court does do what uh, i think most people expect it to in terms of striking down new york's law mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that your disadvantaged people are going to ha be able to legally obtain a license to carry anyway and they're the ones often who live in areas where violence is higher and who could benefit the most from these kinds of protections but you know it, it's really uh i think it's something that people need to think more about and grapple with uh personally because yeah it's uh as far as the gun rights movement goes, it's a big win if the Supreme Court strikes down New York's law, but it certainly doesn't end there. No, uh, and, no. and these sorts of permitting requirements, uh, like you mentioned, extend beyond gun carry to even more, um, I think, base levels like gun ownership. I mean, New York City, the process to own a handgun there is, is like you described, is extremely long and difficult and expensive to get through. Um, yeah, so. I, I just I just think you know just I'll just coattail on what you said, and then I'll be quiet. Um, I think there's just a level of not so much racism. I think it's just arrogance on the part of a lot of these individuals in the in these selected positions uh, in in the in these on the civil side that just really believe that only a certain type of person should have a gun, and if you don't fit, fulfill that profile, that stereotype, when you come in the door or, or when they're looking at your information on a piece of paper, you're not going to get a gun. And I think that is just is not fair. I just think it is internally problematic and we have to start doing something about it. And I will say something about the New York case with the Supreme Court. Even if we win that case, that's not the end of it, like you said. We have to continually keep banging at the door till we get to a point where we're all able to go out and buy a gun. And that's a long fight. There's no silver bullet you know, uh, decision coming down the down the pipeline that's going to do that. So we're just chipping away at where we want to be eventually. And so it's a long-term plan and strategy that we all have to be on board together. And I want to stress together, white folks, black folks, Americans, however you want to put, put us together. But if we don't come together, and I mean this, Stephen, if we don't start coming together and speaking loudly and in unison, we're going to be left with playing with super soakers on a Sunday. Uh, because the other side is very well organized. They're extremely financially um, solvent and, and they're very um, active and they don't hesitate to jump on something that they are willing to believe in. Yeah. Uh, I guess in that vein, uh, I, I was hoping to discuss uh, with you that this recent um, uh, book that was written, uh, it's sort of, this is an old idea, of course, but uh, it's, it's become uh, back into, it's come back into the media's attention uh, in recent weeks, because there was a, a professor who who wrote a, a book uh, about the concept that the Second Amendment uh, was was created um, essentially to protect uh, slave militias or, or uh, Southern slave militias that would uh, you know put down uh, any uprisings. You know this this is the that it's essentially the amendment itself is an explicitly uh, racist. Um, in its origins and purpose. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously, if given what you guys uh, had uh, put in your Supreme Court brief, I would imagine you don't adhere to this interpretation of the Second Amendment. So I wanted to talk with you a little bit about that, uh, just um, what your views of the Second Amendment uh, are and what uh, your thoughts on, on this uh, narrative that's being uh, um, brought up again uh, on the left uh, are like, what's your response to that? I, th I think the second amendment is here to protect us. Everybody, black, white, whomever, Republican, Democrat. Um, and again, I'll say this, um, and I'm not familiar with the, the book that you're talking about, but I'll certainly read it after this, this interview. I think that we need to, as I said before, know that the second amendment uh, in its origin uh, was built for Americans to be able to have the right to carry arms. Now, I would be uninformed if I said there 
weren't in the initial structure of the country, black codes and laws that put African-Americans in a, in a worse position. They weren't able to, to have a, a weapon at all. In fact, in some cases with the black code, as you already know, if a, a slave or someone who was African descent was seen with a, a weapon, and this includes a stake, I mean, a, a knife or a stick or, uh, God forbid, a, a gun, they could be shot on sight with no criminal charges to the person that shot uh, him or her. So do I understand that? Yes, absolutely. But I don't think the Second Amendment, as it's currently structured, um, had a um, perspective that would be against anybody. It was for all of us. So um, that's that's my perspective. Yeah, I mean, th this um, this argument, is, it's not necessarily new, but but there was a book recently, and this, the ACLU had uh, the author on their, their podcast, and so a lot of people mm -hmm. uh, paid attention because the ACLU itself, which is supposed to be a civil liberties organization, obviously, uh, declared that the Second Amendment is racist, uh, even though, I mean, the, the text of the amendment is clearly not racist. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, right. certainly, you know, as you obviously just explained fairly well there, uh, there clearly were, uh, uh, you know, many uh, horrendous uh, uh, abridgments of rights among uh, black people in America for a very long time even you know uh -huh. after the civil war through the civil rights era um uh but that's different than saying that the second amendment uh, you know and, and often the second amendment protections were deprived you know black people were deprived of this deprived of it, yeah. right yeah. Uh, up, up until uh fairly recently uh, uh, you know obviously and um <clears throat> as far as you know american history goes but uh that that's a different thing than saying that the amendment itself which does not talk about race at all. Yeah. Uh, and there's no evidence yeah. that the, even in this book, they don't cite any actual evidence of anyone from the founding era, whether in the Federalist or Anti-Federalist papers, talking about how the amendment is meant to protect slave patrols or what, you know. Yeah, I think, I think people- There's no evidence um, this, as far as I'm aware. You know, I, I, I think people have their own agenda. And I think the ACLU or whomever, you know, they have the agenda that they're trying to promote. And we just have to be diligent about what we what we know as gun advocates, uh, people that that support the Second Amendment. And, I, and I'm going to say that and make sure that because I'll get emails either way. I, we are a nonpartisan organization, but we will speak about Second Amendment issues, because if we feel it's going against the Second Amendment, we're going to talk about it. And I don't have a problem with that. So um, to your point, people, if you look at the Second Amendment for what it is, it's a great, it's a great document. It's a great amendment. Has it been used correctly in some instances for against black people? No, it hasn't. It's been used in incorrectly, but it itself is is a is pretty clear document about what uh, it does and and how it serves uh, the country. Yeah, and I mean the concern, uh, one of the concerns in Dred Scott, the uh, with with uh, you know declaring black people to be persons under the Constitution was that they would be entitled to second amendment rights to keep and bear arms to have um, guns yeah yeah and so it's it's hard for me to understand this argument uh, or you know uh, give any credence to the idea that the second amendment itself was was racial was racist in in its text no, or no, its i would disagree racial. and now if they said black codes i i would say that that was definitely Certainly. racist you know some of the jim crow laws absolutely um but i don't think uh it would include the second amendment yeah no um and and so uh, one other thing I was wondering. So you mentioned earlier uh, about um, you know the things that have drawn people to to your group uh, yeah. over the last year and a half. Uh, obviously, we we had uh, and and this you mentioned tensions, uh, of course, uh, political mm -hmm. tensions, but but certainly uh, you know racial tensions in the United States and tensions between police and and uh, Black Americans uh, have been in, inflamed. You know to uh for, for some time. <laughs> right yeah has that what what effect have you seen from that on black ownership um i think that that has driven black gun ownership to be to be clear it has have our folks um and including me myself because i consider myself a black person every day of the week um we have conversations now um, and this is where having the organization is is a great benefit because you can sit down with others going through similar thoughts and similar experiences and, and talk about um, the relationship they have with the police or not have a relationship with the police and, and have a, a, a good conversation. I think it's necessary. 
Um, that's and that's a big benefit for their for NAGA and itself because it allows our community to come together the way we want to come together and talk about things the way we want to talk about them. Sometimes it's raw, sometimes it's tough, and we call it tough conversation days. Um, but though you need those conversations because you can have an honest assessment of what people are going through. Uh, some of my most difficult and productive discussions have been very tough discussions with my own members because they've been able to say, hey, Phil, this is, how, this is what I'm going through. This is my interaction with, with law enforcement, and I just want you to know that. And I have a tendency to be, um, I'm always trying to think, hoping that the glass is half full, looking for the, the positive and everything. And sometimes a lot of my folks will say, no, Phil, it's not that way. And I have to respect that and, and understand that um, regardless of, of what I may think. And, and that's the beauty of the organization. You're allowed to think how you want to think versus some other organizations where you have to kind of walk alike, talk alike, dress alike, vote alike. We're not like that. We're what we call a big 10 operation where anybody can come, black Republicans, black Democrats, black libertarians, black folks that don't want to vote at all and just want to shoot. You can do that too. So um, it allows you some latitude. I think that's a good thing for the organization. And yeah, I guess that, that dovetails well into my next question here, which is just uh, what, what do you think the value of having a, a black gun rights group is? Uh, you know, obviously some people would say, you know, why, why not just, uh, you know, join the NRA or be part of their uh, outreach programs for, for minorities yeah. or something, you know, something along those lines. What, what is it that you think uh, provides that extra value to having um, an African-American gun association in particular? You know, the, I mean, it sounds like that, that what you just described would be one thing, right? That, you know, people can, who've had shared experience, shared background mm -hmm. um, as black Americans coming together and being able to, to talk more freely amongst each other, I guess, uh, just, just that sort of knowledge of, you know, having a same base level experience um, you know, what, what is it that uh, you think uh, necessitates I, the, the, the group? The, the one thing I heard a lot when I first started, this is back in 2015, because we're about six years old now. One of the one things I heard constantly, this bing, 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 was that we're not being heard, Philip. We're not being heard. It's like we're not at the table. We don't exist. So one of the first things I did when I started the organization was have a news editorial, a newsletter that went out every month. And I talked about the issues that they were telling me that they want to talk about. I talked about the Trayvon Martins. I talked about black on black crime. I talked on black on white crime. I talked on African-Americans um, being shot, um, domestic terrorism. I talked about all the issues that our community wanted to talk about. Some of the discussions are very, very tough, but we're better for it at the end of the day. When you have um, the ability to do that, I think and this is my, my perspective, I'll be very selfish about it because I'm, you know, I'm very biased because about my organization. You have a, have a group of folks that at least can respect where you're coming from because you're true to your word. And if we were to say, okay, why don't you join another organization? If that organization doesn't speak to your concerns when one of yours is shot, and I'll give an example, uh, Trayvon Martin, or Philando, especially Philando Castillo, Gun owner, lawful gun owner, good guy, loved by his family, loved by his employers, all around community guy, just just well liked, just a good guy. When you fail to respond to that in detail to a group of people that are basically saying, you know what, we just want to hear something, something that we can gravitate to, something we can hold on to, and you got us, you got us. But when you hear nothing but mice droppings, that lets that makes folks say, you know what? I'm not. Why should I join you when you don't hear me? And it's very very simple. I'll, I'll belong to an organization that that represents my beliefs and things that are important to me. And I'm not trying to demonize any organization. Let me, let me say that first and foremost. We don't do that at NAC, and I don't do that. Everybody's entitled to their own perspective, and that's what makes America beautiful. You can be who you want to be, have the organization that you want to have. That's fine and dandy. But the reason why our organization has been able to thrive is because other organizations have not looked at us and say, you know what, that's a very important segment of society of folks. And they're crying out, literally saying, 
this is something that, or these topics are something that we want to talk about, and we want an organization that can, that can consistently talk about it and talk about it without fear. And I think that's something that we've really been able to successfully do within with NAGA. Right. And so uh, people who want to join uh, NAGA or people who mm -hmm. want to support what you're doing, what you're, what you're trying to accomplish, how can they do that? What's the best avenue? Sure. Just go to our website. Before you join, I always tell everybody, read and look at the information on our website. Get a detailed knowledge of what we're about, what we believe in. Um, we have a great website. It's very informative. We go over the history of the organization. We go over the history of African-Americans that were famous, that, that came before us. We talk about the Tuskegee Airmen, the Buffalo Soldiers. We talk about the Deacons of Defense. Those are all famous Americans. Uh, the 761st Army uh, Unit. Um, all those folks we talk about, we talk about what we believe in. We talk about gun ownership and training and training and more training. So you get a good feel for the organization. You can get all that by going to www.naaga.co. And uh, that's uh, our website, and it's very, very uh, um, well put together, I think. At least what? I think it is. Wonderful. All right. Well, uh, I hope people will check that out and see more about what you guys are, what you guys are trying to do and what you're uh, venture putting together here going forward. Um, and I really appreciate you coming on to talk with us, to share your perspective. Uh, I thought it was fascinating. Some of the stuff uh, that you had to say, so I really appreciate it. I hope you can come back on again in the future too. Thanks Tim. I'd love to do it. And thanks for allowing me to run my mouth for a little bit. I appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. It was wonderful. Uh, I really enjoyed it. So thank you. Uh, and, and we'll have you on gone. Uh, we'll have you on again soon in the future too. All right. Thanks, Stephen. Have a good day. All right. And that is it for this week. Remember, members get this a day early in addition to a bunch of exclusive content, wonderful content, like the freshest, ripest content that you can possibly pay for uh, over at thereload.com. You can join. You'll get the podcast early. You'll get the, those exclusive uh, member posts. You'll get that exclusive member newsletter chock full of great insights. Uh, if I do, if I do say so myself, but uh, that's all I've got for you this week, and um, I'll see you again. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. I had one friend, now there's none. I made the devil run. I broke so many bones. But none of them were ever my own